Welcome back to the Wise Divine Woman podcast, where I help you go from fed up to faith-fueled, helping you to become the wise divine woman that you are created to be. Today, I have Dr. Glenn Livingston, and he has created this book, Defeat Your Cravings. Now, if you're like me, that is a problematic issue. It's a constant concern, and I'm always identifying the different areas myself, especially when you're reaching for something and am I hungry, am I thirsty, and what's going on in my mind. So I thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, Dr. Glenn, and tell me about yourself. How did you get to this topic? Oh, well, I, I lost a chocolate bar. I um, lost a war with a chocolate bar in 1982, and I kind of didn't look up for for 20, 30 years, I was, I was almost 300 pounds and my triglycerides were over a thousand. And, um, you know, if you were at the Woodbury Country Deli in Syosset, Long Island, um, sometime in the 90s and you got there and there was no pizza or Pop-Tarts, the odds are that I got there before you. Um, so I'm, I'm not just a doctor that decided to work with overeaters. I'm, I'm actually a child and family psychologist by training, um, but I had a problem with food. I, I was a you know, I'm 6'4", genetically, I'm modestly muscular. And so when I was young, I could eat whatever I wanted to if I worked out hard enough. And today they would call that exercise bulimia. But when I was 17 years old, they called it um, really cool, like a really cool thing. <laughs> it felt like a superpower, like Doug Graham says. And, um, you know, m multiple pizzas in a sitting, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars, anything that wasn't nailed down. I, I kind of lived to eat and I... I worked out to get rid of it. Um, and that worked fine until I'm 22, 23 years old and I'm married and I'm commuting two hours each way to see patients and go to graduate school. And I'd come home and God forbid my wife wanted to talk to me. Um, you know, and then I'd have to help her run the business. So um, I didn't have the time to work out and I was getting older and my metabolism was slowing. But the worst part was, the food had a hold of me. I couldn't really stop. Mm -hmm. The worst part was, that I couldn't stop thinking about it. And being a psychologist was always most important to me. I really always wanted to be a great doctor, but I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient thinking, when can I get the next pizza? And that, that really bothered me. Thank God I didn't lose anybody. I think I made up for it by working really hard and studying really hard, um, but it really bothered me. And I'm, I'm from a family of 17 psychotherapists and you know, it just was always the most important thing to me. Um, so I had an unusual career from that point because my my wife was in advertising, advertising research, and she traveled for business. So I had a lot of time on my hands after, after I finished graduate school. And I didn't have kids and I didn't commute. So I started a second career consulting for some of her clients and then eventually having my own. Um, and I was on the wrong side of the war. I, I worked with you know, Fortune 500 companies in the food industry and pharmaceutical industry and mostly food. Mm -hmm. um, and I I got to see that they were manufacturing these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and salt and excitotoxins. And it, it just all geared towards hitting the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Personally, that was meaningful to me because up until that point, I'd been going to see psychologist after psychologist, and I'd gone to Overeaters Anonymous, and I, like, I was getting um, 
it was a soulful journey, but I get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. And I was just miserable. I just felt like food had a hold of me. Um, when I saw this, I started to think, started to occur to me that this is a force separate and apart from my personal psychology. Maybe it's not that I have a hole in my heart or that my mama dropped me in my head when I was a baby and her mama dropped her on her head. Yeah. Maybe it's that there's this external force targeting my reptilian brain. And then the advertising industry are very good at pushing those evolutionary buttons. So you think you need this stuff. Um, like I knew a food bar manufacturer that I worked with that said one of the most profitable things they did was to take the vitamins out of the bar so it would taste better, but make the packaging look more enticing instead. And if you have a diversity of vibrant colors on the packaging, the brain recognizes the diversity of vibrant colors in nature as the availability of a diversity of nutrients. That's why they say eat the rainbow, right? Great, you know. Yeah, put the rainbow on the package, right? It, that's so unique and it would be interesting. And in, in it, to me, being from traditionally from the hospitality industry, brilliant on that aspect of understanding how to do better, sell better, and things like that, but so devastating for the culture and for people with their mental health and physical health, right? It, it's devastating because it is your puppy unhappy <laughs> what's your puppy's name oh this is prince and he is a very old grumpy dog and he has to be near me always okay uh, I, I have a cat like that i'm surprised he's not <laughs> oh, oh he is behind me there, there he is oh, um, but it's yeah. so amazing so i mean at what point did you stop doing the advertising for the food a lot longer than I, I was on the wrong side of the war for a lot longer than I care to admit. I, I really stopped doing it in my late 30s. Yeah. Um, and that's about when I started to put things together for myself differently with food. I was I was heavy until about 2003. I was at my heaviest around 2003. Um, and, you know, I, I, around that time, I had gone back and looked at some of my old neurology textbooks. Um, I'm not a medical doctor, but we took neurology in graduate yeah. school. And I saw that the reptilian brain, where the survival drives live, because it was becoming clear to me this was a survival drive that was making a biological error. It was like kind of hijacked by industry. So you think that that's where the good stuff is. And every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, some fat cat in a white suit is laughing all the way to the bank, right? Um but it's a survival drive. It's like what I'd call the feast or famine response. Um, it's, it's the calorie acquisition machine in your brain that thinks that it needs as many calories in a smaller space for the least amount of effort in order to survive. This calorie acquisition machine in your reptilian brain, it doesn't know anything about love. This is what I, I remembered from my neurology textbook. It doesn't know love. It looks at things in the environment. I'm just using my fist to represent the brainstem. Yeah. And it says, when it sees something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? And the hungrier it is, the more likely it is to eat it, right? Um, it's There's no love there. It's the, the um, mammalian brain on top of that says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on your loved ones, on your tribe? Right. And then the neocortex on top of that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have 
on your longer term goals like weight loss or body sculpting or um, spirituality or art or music or work. Um, but there's no love here. So this, this thing that's really responsible for fruit addiction has the power to push aside your rational thinking when it perceives there to be uh, an urgent opportunity or an urgent threat to your to your well-being. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I said, this, I guess I'm kind of pushing 40. And I said, you know, I'm going to need a different approach. I All this mama, papa, didn't love you enough, love yourself thin kind of approach. It made me a better person. I don't hate myself as much. I think I'm more compassionate. I'm more loving to other people. I'm a better doctor. But it, it didn't help me get thin. And so I decided I had to be the alpha dog of my own mind, that there mm -hmm. was this, right? Mm -hmm. And in much the same way that I'm the alpha dog of my bladder or my testicles. Like if my bladder is pushing really hard with a biological urge, that says I have to pee. Like if I had to pee right now, I would say, I'm sorry, I'm talking to Dana. I'll take care of you afterwards. Like I'm in control. I'm the boss, not my bladder. Um, if there's a really attractive woman on the street, I don't go running outside to kiss her, right? I actually run the other way because I'm a little shy, but, 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 um, but I, I'm in control. I don't let these biological urges dictate my behavior. So I said, I have to do the same thing with food. There's got to be a way to do this. So I did something a little crazy. Um, and I want to give credit to Jack Trimpey from Rational Recovery, who was doing something similar with drug addicts and alcoholics. I decided to bifurcate my mind. I decided to create a rule that would let me know what thoughts were serving this reptilian brain and what ser what thoughts were serving my higher self. So for example- Can you repeat that one more time? What did you call it? And explain it again, please. Okay, it's a little bifurcate. embarrassing. What? No, bifurcate? Oh, bi oh, bifurcate just means to split into two. Okay, thank you. Two. So I split my constructor from my destructive thoughts about food. Perfect. And I did that by setting up a kind of a tripwire in the form of a rule. So for example, I said, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again. Um, and I think the rest of that rule was something like I'm allowed to have two ounces on a Saturday or Sunday after I worked out. Um, that way, this this part is a little embarrassing for someone with my credentials. And, you know, I'm actually a sophisticated, very well-trained psychologist, but this is what worked for me. Um, if I was in a Starbucks on a Wednesday, and I heard a little voice in my head that said, Glenn, you see that chocolate bar at the counter? It's not going to cause you to gain weight because you worked out really hard today. So why don't you just forget your silly rule? You can start it again tomorrow. It'll be just as easy. Go ahead and you know eat it today. Yum, yum, yum. Yippee. I would say, well, that voice is not me. Mm -hmm. That voice, this is the embarrassing part. And you don't have to call, you don't have to do just like I did. You can call it something different. Yeah. I said, that voice is my inner pig. I was not going to teach this stuff. It was just going to be private. That voice is my inner pig. Chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Um, yeah, anything works. And I understand that completely. And you have to create the rule in something that works for your own mind. It's the same as breaking down stress patterns in your body or stress patterns and habitual patterns. You have to call it something. You have to identify it. And you identified it. And I love that. And I, And how did that how did that end up working? Like, well, it, it was the first thing that interfered in that automatic habit loop. 
I can't tell you it was a miracle right away. It it eradicated the confusion because up until that point, I thought I had some mysterious force inside me or some psychological mumbo jumbo, whatever. Um, it just kind of cut through all the BS, and I and I was like, whoa, that thing is in charge now. I don't want it to be in charge. I don't like that thing. Mm-hmm. I want to be in charge. I don't, I want to be its master, not its slave. Now I can't say I always made the right decision right away, but it did open up those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse where I could make the right decision. So I made the right decision more often. The ensuing eight years involved listening for what the pig was saying and then invalidating what it said. That's largely how I recovered personally. Um, For example, when the pig said it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow, no, it won't. Because if you have a craving and and, a, and the thought just start tomorrow, mm-hmm. and then you have a piece of chocolate to indulge that craving, you will have reward, rewarded the craving and rewarded the thought. And the pl- principle of neuroplasticity in neurology says what fires together, wires together. So you're going to have a stronger craving for chocolate and a stronger thought about just starting tomorrow, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I would call that a logical refutation, disempowering the pig's false logic. And there are all sorts of things that the pig would say in all sorts of ways to disempower it. Like one bite won't hurt. First of all, it's never a bite. Second of all, one bite is a difference between who's in charge, you or me. One bite is a tragedy when you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, always use the present moment to be healthy. So I, I had all these little sayings that would disempower the logic. That made a tremendous difference for me over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've since learned, because fast forward um, eight years, I was getting divorced in 2015. I decided I wanted to write a book and do something meaningful. I wasn't going to do any more, a lot of stuff. Um, And so I put this, I turned the journal into a book and the book kind of took off. Eight years later, I've got eight books. We've had 2000 clients and 2 million readers over, uh, over a million readers for the, for the books. And um, then another million readers in psychology today. Um, I've learned since that point that there are many more things you need to do in that space. Yes. Like, because I'm going to pause because you, I'm, no, I'm all excited and I'm up on my soapbox. So I'll it's pause for a minute. Good. No, I love it. I think it's absolutely, it's because to me, in my mind, I'm just like, well, that just makes perfect sense, regardless of what it can be. It's this, and, and, I, and, and circle back to actually the excitotoxins and, and it, as you were explaining the brainstem and the different levels of the brain, I'm, my mind is like, oh, well, what food nutrients or what excitotoxins are actually marring those layers of the brain to uh, allow this brainstem to have these uh, this overwhelming power over it. But even the simplicity of the, um, the analogy of the pig breaks you. It's, some some uh, books have always well, in, in Christian culture, it says, you know, this is the, the stomach is the, they call it the king's stomach. You can't let that rule because that's not the, you know, God in the, in the body. But if you're talking about, okay, I can't let my stomach overrule me, you're still talking to yourself. So I love that breakup of things, calling it something else. Mm-hmm. And in that, it is such a, um, such a, a great way to separate things and to break it down because you have to break it down and you have to really trick the mind into getting out of these addictive habits and such and sometimes it's it's not because you were 
bullied in grade 12. No, it's it's because that's just the way the 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 sympathetic and the parasympathetic, the fight or flight of the body or how you, that itself wants to survive, right? right? So your body's always in this crazy perpetual, I'm running from the bear and it doesn't care because it's in survival mode, that reptilian brain, it doesn't care. So it's going to do and want and desire what it wants. And I love that you've broken that down in creating that rule. It's just, it's, it's as simple as that. It's not simple, but it is as simple as that. And I, I love that. Now, what? I'm sorry. Nope. You're first. Oh no, that's okay. When it comes to um, different, like binge eating and things like that, how have you come to, so binge eating, binge eating is, I think is just over amplified now with intermittent fasting, even with keto can be sort of bingey because you get to eat all the folk protein and fat that you want. Uh, but intermittent fasting, how have you found with your clients and your research that you've done with, and I love intermittent fasting because sometimes eating can be a burden. It's, I like, I'm sort of in both worlds. I eat and think and breathe food being from a hosp- hospitality culture and a catering culture. And I just, it's just that, but how do you help your clients understand this emotional binge eating when it comes to the new culture of dieting? Boy, that's a loaded question. I, I, I could talk forever about that. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's take it a little at a time, okay? Yeah. Um, intermittent fasting. I think there are medical benefits for intermittent fasting, and I don't want to dispute them in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that... I have about half the success rate with people who insist on intermittent fasting right away. Um, because a lot of people are trying to do intermittent fasting and then, you know, they're having this one gigantic meal at the end of the day or something like that. And we, we call that binging on a schedule. Um, so instead of, you know, one meal a day, it's one, one binge a day. Um, and the problem with that, from my understanding, is that you don't ever really get fat adapted. And so, and so it's not, You don't get the slow, steady burn that you're really looking for, and you have all these cravings. And what I find is that if I can get people to have three meals a day for six months first, before they go back to intermittent fasting, then then they can do it. And then they can do it even more strongly. They have a lot of the junk out of their system, and the intermittent fasting really works for them. But people people who've been doing intermittent fasting and binging on a schedule they're frightened to go back to eating several times a day. They'll tell me, I can't eat breakfast. I'm just not hungry. It makes me nauseous. Um, but I, it's rare that, like I said, about half the time, I have about half the rate of success with people than I do if they're willing to have three meals a day for a couple of months. Um, there was also this interesting meta-analysis lately. I don't know what you think about it which said that there was a 25% increase in all-cause mortality among people who were skipping breakfast. And I think it was because of associated habits, not because of skipping breakfast itself. Um, but that that scared me a little bit. So I I don't do it. I don't do the intermittent fasting, even though I think there might be medical benefits from it. I, I used to do those types of things. And it was part of how I tried to right. overcome overeating a long time ago. But are they then, so even with the mortality rate or an increased mortality rate, right? 
have they actually addressed the core reason for this new habit? Is it an avoidance? And then that increased rate would probably be that their nutritional core value, the, the nutritional basics, the foundation of the health of the body are probably really not being addressed or that stress aspect, but. Right, right. it's like when people say that psychotherapy doesn't work, but there are often only one out of 10 psychotherapists are really good psychotherapists. So, yeah. I, I, so I, I question the research and probably yeah. one out of 10 people that's doing intermittent fasting is doing it the right way, so. Right, right, yeah. right. And I think it is, you, you still have to face the reason that you've got yourself into this cycle in the first place, not thinking that intermittent fasting or even to say keto is actually going to, and I love both. I love both. They both have valid reasons for everything, but you can still eat and and still come to the plate where it's not going to be nutritionally beneficial to you because of the psychological damage that you haven't faced. Correct. Um. Yes and no. Okay. Y yes and no. Um, I think the relationship between emotions and overeating is more complex than it seems to be on the surface. Mo most people believe that they're overeating for comfort or to quote unquote numb out. And I always ask them, well, if you were eating chocolate to numb yourself out, couldn't your dentist say, I'm sorry, I'm out, of, I'm out of Novocaine. How about if I just inject you with some chocolate instead? There's another um, reason that people go for chocolate, which is because it's so delicious and tasty. It's a concentration of pleasure that doesn't exist in nature. Another name for that is a drug. Now, it's fine if you want to have it sometimes, but I think that there's damage we do if we fool ourselves into thinking we're just doing it to numb out. We're doing it for the, the pleasure there also. Mm -hmm. And so I ask people to switch paradigms and say, I think I'm getting high with food um, because most people don't want to think of themselves as, as an addict. Right. The other thing is that while it's true that when you overload the digestive system, that your uh, neurological system has trouble conducting the emotions, the impact of that is there's kind of an anesthetic effect on the emotions when you overeat. So you're not as angry or anxious or you know depressed or lonely when you're eating a, a container of ice cream or a whole pizza. Um, so that that's true. What's also true, however, is that you don't have to solve the emotional problems in order to stop overeating. If you think of overeating as a really bad habit or collection of habits, then I find that a better goal is to separate the two tasks. Um, focus on the habit first. Mm -hmm. It's like you're trying to sever the connection between emotional upset and overeating in the same way that you would build a really good fireplace in your living room around a roaring fire. Say a roaring fire is an asset in a well-constructed fireplace because the ashes can't get out. Mm -hmm. But the moment that the ashes can get out, they can burn down the house. I find that it's faster to build that fireplace than to fix the emotions. I, I enjoy you know, doing psychotherapy. I have a couple of people that I kind of sort of work with um, like that. I, I enjoy that, but it's a different task than eliminating these habits. When you eliminate the habits, 
you're actually better able to look at the fire or become safer to look at the fire and figure out how to fix the psychological problems that that it, and traumas that occurred in the first place. Um, so I have a lot of people, they hear, you know, they hear me doing coaching demonstrations. They think I'm this really compassionate psychotherapist. And when I say, well, no, I don't really offer psychotherapy anymore in the context of the future cravings, because this is, um, this is a habit neutralization protocol. It's not a, it's not a, you know, fix your heart, fix your brain kind of protocol. Um, the last thing is that I think there's a two-way relationship between emotions and overeating. Most people think I overeat, I, you know, I feel upset, therefore I overeat, right? Um, this causes that. But would it surprise you to know that overeating also causes the difficult emotions? Our, our bodies are set up to notice how to acquire calories. And so if you're anxious or angry or very sad, that's a physiological state. There are, you know, for example, in anxiety, we could measure your blood pressures up a little bit, your perspiration and respiration and galvanic skin response all go up a little bit. Um, if I give you a chocolate bar every time your blood pressure is up a little bit, you will learn to produce higher blood pressure. Um, they've done this with animal studies where they've taught them to have higher blood pressure and more respiration and perspiration. So you can actually create anxiety by rewarding it with food. I've consistently found, um, now I have to uh, preempt this by saying, please don't stop following your doctor's instructions for um, medication for anxiety, depression, you know, schizophrenia, any, anything else like that, any kind of mental disease or disorder or condition. However, I have consistently found that when I can get people to break the habit of overeating when they feel anxious, which is the most common thing people say makes them want to overeat at night, when I can get them to do that, they go through a period where, where the anxiety floods them for a little bit, for a couple of days, and then they don't feel anywhere as anxious as they they remember feeling um, because their their brain is not getting the reinforcement for the anxiety. And so... They don't, they don't believe me when I tell them this, but if I can get them to try it, um, you know, a few days, certainly a few weeks later, they, um, they come back and they say, well, I don't think the anxiety was as bad as I really thought it was in the first place. So, so it's a two-way relationship. It's a complex mm -hmm. relationship. Yeah. I love that. I love that because anxiety is just one of those things that keep coming up. There's many reasons for it. And even in the younger generations, and it's certainly one of those cultures or issues that need to be addressed but so dana could i say one more thing yes of course it, it's really important to be open to these other paradigms these very behavioral paradigms about emotional eating because otherwise you wind up in a situation like i did where for 20 years you're just doing all this soul searching thinking it's going to get you to stop having chocolate and and you're damaging your body and you're creating worse habits in the meantime. And it becomes this voice of justification. Like I figured out from a talk with my mom that when I was one year old in 1965, because her father had just gotten out of prison and, and she was frightened that my dad was going to be sent to Vietnam. He was a captain in the army. I figured out that she didn't have the wherewithal to love me and hold me and play with me when I came looking to her for, you know, love and nurturance. So she gave me a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup instead. And she'd have me, you know, open the cap and suck on the bottle and just go into a chocolate sugar chroma. 
you would think that that would have solved my problem, but it actually provided justification instead because my inner pig said, Glenn, you know what? Our mama didn't love us enough. You're right. She left a mm -hmm. great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until you can get out of this marriage or find the love of your life or fix the marriage, you're going to have to just keep on eating chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some more. Um, and so that kind of thing went on for years and years and years until I decided to make the behavioral extinguishment, extinction, the right. the core focus rather than my my emotions problem i love that yeah you do i love that you went back to that to explain that stuff stuff happens but and it creates us to where we are today but we need to change our habits yeah. and identify the habits and change the habits and repeat those habits and repeat and repeat and repeat until you get to see the reward of the change Mm -hmm. And that doesn't extinguish the the trauma or the situation in the first place. I can't even say trauma because trauma is such a big word. Um, that that what you felt emotional about in the first place may not be gone, but you're going to be healthier and reach your own health goals in the meantime, right? And you and I would think that in healing the body in that aspect of creating better nutrition, foundation nutrition, better eating habits, uh, and better emotional responses to that, right? Those habitual, uh, those habit forming practices that you talk about in your book, in the end is going to help the gut, it's going to help produce bacteria, it's going to help produce, you know, good level magne you know you're going to absorb your nutrients which in the end will change your mental health having the proper nutrients that we know oh, yeah. are necessary you're absorbing your food you're absorbing all the different things that you need which in the end i believe makes you eat less anyways because you are already absorbing more and more and more of the nutrients so it's this great big full circle moment at some point that you've reached in this sense of you've broken down your habits and mm -hmm. and you've created these you've broken down the things and you've created you've stuck to it and you're reaping the rewards of that and you feel a sense of mastery yeah. which translates to the rest of your life i like love if, that if i can beat my eating what what could stand in my way yeah well nothing really it is difficult it's such a difficult topic because it's it's you have to eat and and there's so many different factors at play against you that are out of your bounds, like the, the excitotoxins, how things are prepared, the psychological aspect of food manufacturing, and you've stated so many things. But again, we have to retrain ourselves and retrain our minds to create better habits. And I love that. Can you tell me a little bit about your book? Um, well, Defeat Your Cravings is actually my eighth book. Um, wow. That's, that's my eighth book. I, I started... Um, in 2015, I wrote that book that got really popular and got over, you know, a million readers. And then I wrote for Psychology Today for a while. Um, about a year or two ago, it started to be clear to me that it wasn't enough to fix your thinking about food. That, you know, we we kept really careful track of results, and we got to the point where people would have a 90% reduction in their overeating episodes after one month. So we, you know, it, for me, it took eight years going back and forth with the pig, but 
did a lot of the work for them and we kind of got a group of techniques together and we really teach it to people very quickly and they have a very quick sense of relief. Um, but then if you look around the six months to a year mark, it's more like 60%. And which was bimodal. So, so there were, you know, people who were still around 80 or 90 and people who had kind of stopped doing the things and were really, you know, almost back where they were. Um, but I think, why why do people stop if this works so well? Then why do people stop? I didn't stop. Um, and I got very curious about what was interfering. And it, it came down to what I would call the screw it, just do it response, where people would say, okay, I don't have the justifications anymore. I know that's my inner pig talking, but oh, well, what the hell? I'm just going to do it anyway, right? And I... This, I had the audacity to ask people, well, what caused that? And they would immediately say, I don't know. I just get that feeling. It overcomes me. It feels like a like a locomotive. I can't stop a train in its tracks. And I would push them and say, well, you know, tell me about the day before. Tell me about what happened. And tell me about what else you ate that day. Tell me about what, what else you did that day, what was happening. And I saw some very interesting patterns. They all circle around what I would call organismic distress. So um, for the clearest example would be if people eat irregularly, maybe they skipped a meal or two, maybe um, they only had, you know, bagels and tomatoes for the day or something like that. They really they weren't getting a full complement of nutrients or, you know, macronutrients. Um, Maybe they'd eaten something a little higher glycemic the night before and it threw their blood sugar and their hormones out of balance. And so the next day they had these stronger cravings to normalize that or their, you know, their dopamine was particularly low, which put them in a foul mood and they wanted something to, to bring it back up. Um, and the, the lower brain has the ability to push the rational brain out of the way when it feels enough organismic distress. They could have been too tired. Um, they They could have had to make too many decisions over the course of the day, not just food decisions, but decisions mm -hmm. at work, emails and everything like that. Willpower is the ability to make good decisions and we can only make so many each day. Um, like people have trouble resisting marshmallows if you ask them to do math problems beforehand. It, it seems like it just burns a little bit, bit of glucose every little decision you have to make. So I would tell people to have a few five minute breaks each day um, put your phone down, get away from the computer, don't talk to anybody, just take five minutes for yourself, decision-free, and that seemed to help a little bit. Um, there's, the, there's the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic nervous system. It seems like when we really looked at it, when people were getting that screw it, just do it response, before that would happen, there'd be some activation of the sympathetic nervous system. You could tell because they maybe they'd have goosebumps or their mouth would get a little bit dry or their heart rate would go up just a little bit. Their brain, their, their brain and their body would be getting into doing mode, like this urgent sense of we have to do something, which I jokingly say is to just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Yeah. Mode. Um, and that was a really good insight because I learned that you can actually um, preempt that by doing what Lori Hammond taught me with 7-11 breathing. If you breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11, or just breathe out longer than you breathe in, your brain starts to think there's no emergency. Because if there was an emergency and you were running from a hungry bear, you'd be going, 
there would right. be no time to, to breathe like that. So that activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your you know, your chill system. It's okay to rest and digest and strategize and plan. Um, you know, we started looking at things like social isolation. Um, this doesn't mean that people have to be the life of the party or you know they can't be introverted. But if you feel like there's nobody around, like you don't really have a tribe, um, we're a pack animal and the brain starts to perceive an emergency. I, I hypothesize uh, when that happens and you're more likely to have the screw it, just do it response. And so really, in addition to these very practical techniques for fixing your thinking, we had to introduce more techniques for self-regulation and control and, um, and, and nurturing. You know, like I, it, it kind of, kind of bring, brings me back to, then that brings you back to the patterns that you learned and were you nurtured as a kid and everything like that. And, but even so, you institute the behaviors rather than analyzing the, the past per se. Um, and that's what the new book is about. It's kind of updating and integrating all of the anti screw it, just do it research that we did. And then it also looks more carefully at the behavioral research on the extinction of food cravings um, and why it doesn't just go down in a straight line. If you um, if you stop eating something, it actually goes down a little bit, then it goes way up and then it comes down. I could, I could tell you why if you want to, it'll take a little longer, um, but that's in the book. Um, and I just, I just felt compelled to write another one after all these years and 2000 clients and um, yeah, it's, it's the feature cravings. You want me to tell them where to get a free copy or do you want to talk about something else first? You tell me, what is your heart telling you? Like, it is understanding the spike in the reprogramming or not the reprogramming, in understanding your change in the habits. Is that something that people should be cautious of? You have the, you're coming down and understanding your habits and you have this spike that comes. It's something you need to be aware of. Yeah. Um, because if, and it's also important to be aware that cravings come in stimulus craving pairs, right? Um, so let's just talk about the spike first. Yeah. Let's say that I'm eating pizza every day on the way home from work at this particular pizza place. And so I just, and I'm developing a pot. So I decide I have to make a rule that I'm never going to stop at the pizza place on the way home again. Well, if I think that it's supposed to get easier and easier and easier, and then all of a sudden there's this spike, um, we could talk about the reason for this spike. There's a very clear evolutionary reason for it, but just it's enough to know that it's going to happen. If I don't think, if I didn't know that, then I would think I'm weak. This is not going to work. I'm going to be tortured forever. But when you really have to do is be prepared for that spike and push through. And if I keep driving past the pizza place day after day, by about day 30, it's hardly going to bother me. They're going to couple, be a couple of little mini cravings, but then I'm going to wonder how it was so hard in the first place. Um, it's important to know that the craving comes in stimulus craving pairs because even after that 30 days, when I can drive past the pizza place with ease, if I go to play poker with the guys and you know we, we would do this every other month or so and there was always a pizza, um, I might find myself suddenly craving the pizza when I'm at poker with the guys. If I didn't know this, I would think, oh my God, I failed. Um, this is going to torture me forever. If I do understand, I'd say, well, no, I succeeded at extinguishing the pizza place as a stimulus for pizza cravings. I didn't extinguish the poker game 
as a pizza place for cravings. And so you need to make a list of all the different yep. stimuli and make a plan for dealing with that as you as you go along. Yeah. You still get to eat the pizza? If you want to. <laughs> but because <laughs> but but because you you break the habit of that driving by pizza, pick it up, you've broken that habit, you can still go back to eating pizza occasionally. Or do you find that it just reignites all of the different receptors to say okay so, let, so let's talk about that yeah um okay the short answer is that two out of three people that i work with are able to moderate the foods that they love or the treats that they love with very specific conditions one out of three people has to give it up entirely mm. um it, you if if a food is out of control it usually works best if you want to moderate it and not give it up, which is what most people want to try first, is to create very specific conditions under which it can be rewarded. Like, I'll only ever have chocolate on Saturday afternoon after my workout and no more than three ounces, right? Um, that works because, remember, your brain is a calorie acquisition machine, mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't want to waste energy in acquiring calories. So it's kind of like if you know that there was a slot machine that only paid off on Saturday afternoons after your workout, I don't know why that would be the case, but let's say it was, then you wouldn't bother going to the casino any other day besides Saturday afternoon, right? right. But if you, if you think that it's going to randomly pay off, then your brain's going to go crazy and reactivate the worst cravings that it's ever had as often as it can. Kind of like if you told your kid, you know, anytime we're at the toy store, you might get a, you might get a toy. They're going to have a temper tantrum every time you go to the toy store. Yeah. 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 So you're basically a toddler with food. So yes. <clears throat> yeah. your, your reptilian brain acts like a toddler with food. It does. You don't have to be a toddler with food, but your reptilian brain is like a toddler with food. So the answer is, if you want to moderate, create very specific conditions under which you will try to have it and make a very specific boundary. That way you don't have to burn willpower making decisions about it and your brain will learn that it's only available under these very specific conditions. Two or three people can do that just fine. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that aspect and in understanding, it is about creating success for yourself. So if you know you love going to the poker game, then bring your food that you can eat for that day so you're not defeating yourself because there'll be pizza there, right? Or, or, or tell yourself that you can have two slices at the poker game, um, you know, once a month or once every other week or whatever you want to do, yeah. but, but just, you know, bound it, but bind it to the very specific circumstances and quantities. And um, there's a good chance you'll be able to do that or bring the food with you. Yes. Or bring healthy food with you. I love yeah. that. I love that. That is so amazing. I love, and, and I can just imagine the topics that you cover and the research that you've done and the, the under the complexity of, eating and health and psychology for you, you can talk for days. It's just amazing. I, I could. Yeah. And, and, and I do sometimes. <laughs> and yeah. And it's so amazing because there's so many different things you can talk about and how that and many topics we didn't even touch today because it, it we are complex and food is complex and emotions are complex and it's a, it's an ever evolving thing. And again, it's about creating, I think, you're creating the habits to overcome the issues that you're you're facing when it comes to in this situation food right 
Mm-hmm. I love that. So tell me more. Where can we where can we find this book? Um, you can get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format at defeatyourcravings.com. Defeatyourcravings.com. Click the big blue button. When you sign up for the reader bonus list, you'll not only get a free copy in the electronic formats, the, the traditional formats, paperback and audible have a charge, but um, electronic formats are free. You not only get that, I have put together a set of food plan starter templates for any dietary philosophy. Um, this is a diet agnostic methodology. So as long as you're nourishing yourself regularly, um, we can help you to stick to your plan. So there are examples for people who would be doing ketogenic versus macrobionic versus point calories or point counting or calorie counting or, you know, whole foods, plant-based, whole foods, animal-based. Um, there's a wide variety of dietary examples there. Uh, we call them starter templates because I'm not medically trained, so I can't give you a diet, um, but you can. And then I know this sounds kind of cold and weird in the abstract. Like, what, why does Dana have a doctor with a pig on inside of him? What, what What's she doing? It's actually a very compassionate, life-giving process. And I, I wanted you to hear how I could take people from feeling despairing and frightened and um, very hopeless about food to feeling confident and optimistic and hopeful in just one session. So I've, I've recorded dozens of sessions. And if you sign up for that... Um, reader bonus list, you'll get to hear those too. So defeatyourcravings.com, click the big blue button. Wow, that is very generous in everything that you're providing for this. It must be very compassionate to you, you know, very Gratifying. dear to your heart. And as you know, that, that is dear to your heart. You've been so uh, defeated to come to this point now that you've had such success that you have to help others. And I think that is just incredible to have put that together for people. And Glenn, I thank you. I thank you so much for sharing this time. We could have been talking for about three hours because it's so fascinating and it's so important. Like stress eating, overeating, and binge eating is something that many, the majority of people, I believe, uh, have issues with and that can apply to different parts of life anyways. But tell me, I always ask, what is a word of wisdom that you can give today that is just something you really learned from thing, something from that you wish to share? A word of wisdom. Um, character <laughs> trumps willpower. What character trumps willpower? What, what you really want to do is figure out something that you'll do consistently. Like set, set the bar low. Try one simple rule. I always put my fork down between bites. I never go back for seconds. Um, I never eat in front of the screen. So something very simple that you can do whether your motivation is high or your motivation is low. Most people live by the dictum, like that old um, that old poem, when she was good, she was very, very good. When she was bad, she was hard. Um, that's how most people eat. They go through periods of trying to be really, really good and white knuckling and holding on tight and then they say screw it and they just go way downhill um it's a, it's a diet you know a, di a diet yo-yo roller coaster instead what if you set the bar really low and you saw yourself every day not going back for seconds i know this truck driver who said i'm not going to stop eating fast food three times a day because i can't because i'm on the road but i tell you what i won't go back for seconds well 
when you see yourself do that day in and day out, there's this little function in your brain that says, I must be someone who doesn't go back for seconds. I'm just the kind of person that doesn't go back for seconds. And it becomes part of your identity. Um, and then you don't really have, it doesn't feel like there's this Nazi policeman um, regulating your food that you, you know, you will not go back for seconds. You will not, right? It doesn't, it, it doesn't yeah. feel like that. It just feels like I'm not the kind of person who goes back for seconds. Um, you know, I evolved with my chocolate rule to never have chocolate again. And I decided to adopt that rule because I wasn't someone that could moderate it. I can moderate a lot of other things. I can moderate flour or um, all kinds of other things, but I can't moderate chocolate. Um, but I don't feel like there's a Nazi food policeman. I don't even have a rule anymore that says I'll never have chocolate again. I just became someone who doesn't have chocolate. We have this, we, you know, ca character is what we habitually do at the moment of temptation. And we have this character shortcut built into the mind because it saves us time and energy. We don't, I don't have to make any chocolate decisions. I'm just someone who doesn't do it. So that's what you want to do. You want to leverage the power of character trumping willpower by starting with something really simple that you'll do day in and day out, even if you're in a foul mood, even if you just mm -hmm. don't feel like it. That's excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and your knowledge and it is incredible the things that I've learned today. And I really look forward to reading this book as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much too. I enjoyed it. Have a beautiful day today.